Good morning, ladies and gentle people. This is Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. My buddies Clyde Adams and Ray Boucher used to say, Exploding Explained Phenomena. <laughs> and what's in your cup? I've got some really tasty Jack Reacher in my cup. And uh, yes, it is glorious. Uh, this is the sort of cold weather that you could almost... Uh, bathe in this stuff. You know, you could apply it as lotion. Um, I didn't get a lot of sleep last night, so perhaps I can apply this to my temples and the top of my head, and I'll, I'll try just to, to sip it for a while here. And thank you for putting that picture in my head, Scott. Well, Jim, it's better than a big empty room. And, <clears throat> Jim, how have you been? Ah, Surviving. We have really cold weather. We have really cold weather and a little bit of snow and ice on top of that. Yeah, I got to tell you something really funny. I'm gonna, okay. in fact, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring Charlene up here too. Let's let's do that. I'm sure uh, we've all got stories from this morning and last night. Okay, Charlene with Pet Talk, are you there? I am, and I'm ready for your funny story. Okay, you, you're gonna love this. You're gonna absolutely love this. Okay, so. Um, I was uh, teaching some guitar lessons, and I asked one of my students, his name is Blake, um, and I said, uh, Blake, um, tell me uh, if you've enjoyed the snow day. And he grinned, and he said, yeah. And do you know why it snowed? Well, I was intrigued, so I said, no. He said, I put ice cubes in the toilet, I put a spoon under my pillow, and I put my pajamas on inside out and went to bed. And that's why it snowed. And I said, really? I've never heard that before. And he said, yes, my teacher Thursday told us that if we wanted to have a snow day, that's what we needed to do. <laughs> now, I understand from friends that this sort of meme has been going around. So now I'm thinking... Move over, Harry Potter. We have a bunch of young sorcerers here. These folks have a secret club, and somehow they communicate that when they want to have a snow day, they put ice cubes in the toilet, a spoon under the pillow, and they wear their pajamas inside out. And lo and behold, it snowed. Goodness. Okay, so those kids need to come over and shovel my sidewalk and thaw out my car. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> So that's going to account for the parents that are now nodding their heads saying, no wonder we're always missing ice cubes out of the freezer. And this, the, the silverware is dwindling, huh? There's a whole collection of spoons in my son or daughter's room. And, of course, the consequence of the actions is there's always extra work for those kids to do because of the snow while they're at home. So what do you think about that, Charlene? Is that just zany or what? Yeah, it's something I'm going to have to process. <laughs> yeah, it's a little zany. Yeah. <laughs> Ice cubes in the toilet, a spoon under your pillow, and put your pajamas on inside out. So I, <laughs> I figured I could do two of those, but then I thought, wait a minute, I don't have any ice in the freezer, but this is Nebraska. It just snowed with an ice storm. Yeah, I can probably find some ice. Yeah. <laughs> well, that side effect, they turned my car into an ice cube, I think. Okay, so if you folks are out and about today in Lincoln and southeast Nebraska, exercise a lot of care. And especially if you 
Put your foot down on what looks like a concrete surface. It may be really, yeah, it really slippery. Maybe really slippery. And I'm sure Charlene will have some cold weather pet wisdom for us. Well, let's just, yeah, let's jump into it right there, Charlene. This is Pet Talk. And uh, help us understand how cold weather affects our pets. Um, so it, it's really hard on their paws. I know the, the dogs get excited about the snow, but a lot of times once they get out there and that cold snow gets caught between their pads, it can really freeze up and be uncomfortable. Mm-hmm. They get those little ice balls. Uh, so you just want to use really good judgment about how far you want to go because they may not be able to come back because their feet are so cold. Uh, so just be really wise about how far you want to walk your dog on a day like this. Um, there's a lot of ice melt and things like that that can really be hard on paws, so you want to wipe that off to make sure that they're not tracking that inside or licking it off their paws. And there are some pet-friendly products to consider for your own sidewalk and driveway so um, that it's going to be less harmful if it does get on your pet's paws. Um, but again, it's just really important to be smart. Um, even though they love the snow and get excited, a lot of times it's just colder than they realize, and so you don't want to get too far and then realize that they're too cold. Mm-hmm. This is Charlene with Pet Talk. She's with the Capital Humane Society, and we've got cats up for adoption. And who's first? We have beautiful cats for adoption, and we'll start with Bacon. <laughs> and Bacon is a two-year-old neutered male, a black and brown tabby cat with short hair. He is very shy and will often be hiding, but he loves other cats, and the other cats in him and his colony get along really well. Uh, so maybe you could adopt two, one of uh, him and one of his colony mates. <laughs> um, but Bacon's a lovely cat looking for a lovely family. No resemblance at all to an actual slice of bacon <laughs> yeah bacon goes great with about everything and i love what you said about two cats are better than one mm-hmm. uh, that's what the colborne family did years ago and we just had a blast so okay let's let's look at bacon at capital org, and also look at this next cat his or her name is lulu a siamese <laughs> mix so she's got the pretty blue eyes. It's kind of a lynx point. Mm. It's a very pretty uh, picture of her. Our, our awesome volunteer oh, took that so you can see just oh, wow. how pretty her fur is. Uh, she's looking for a nice warm home where she can cuddle up and be happy. Pale blue eyes are interesting. Mm-hmm. I know a person whose nickname is Lulu, and I was actually in Montana, and we found a town named Lulu, Montana. So we were all over that town taking pictures and just saving that to show our friend. <laughs> okay, Lulu's got a great expression looking quizzically at the camera. Bacon and Lulu are great cats. And then there's... Sophia. And Sophia's probably been here the longest, so she's looking for a great home. She does want to be your one and only cat. Uh, so, And she, she also is a little bit sassy, so she's looking for a home <laughs> without kids. But if you're cat savvy, she's going to be an intelligent companion, just a year old, all black, shiny eyes, uh, ready to entertain you and be your friend. What a beautiful cat. Even her whiskers are black. Uh-huh. Whenever I hear Sophia, I think Italian. I want to come up with, but I just can't come up with it. You, can you do anything Italian? No. Mamma mia. I'm drawing a blank. Sophia, mamma mia. <laughs> okay. Uh, well, this is a fun website. It's capitalhumanesociety.org, 
and you can look at these cats, click on their picture, and the sketches, all thumbnail uh, pictures pop open. You can read more about the uh, pets. And better yet, uh, you can go out and see them. Here's uh, Charlene with cats that are available today and tomorrow. What are the hours? We are open at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center today and tomorrow from 11 to 5.30. Okay, it's time for dogs for adoption. We've got some great dogs. And who's our first up? We'll start off with Bruce. He's a boxer mix, a neutered (laughs) male, about a year old. Uh, Wants to be your one and only furry friend, but he's a lot of fun, so you will never wish for more. He's just, his whole body wiggles when he's happy, and he's looking for a family that can provide him with plenty exercise and playtime and attention. Hi, little dog. What's your name? I am Bruce. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, what a great picture. Okay, Bruce is our first dog up, and who's second? Patches. A terrier mix. She's got a cute little patch over her eye. She's about eight months old, a spayed female, very active, so needs a family that can keep up with her and provide her with training and proper care. Um, We do want her to meet other dogs and kids to make sure it's a good match, Uh, but she's a beautiful dog ready to meet a nice family. Uh, Patches, what a great-looking dog. Indeed, there's a patch over that left eye. And of uh, cool. Uh, what's the breed of patches? What what would you guess? We have her as terrier mix, and yeah. I do see different types of terriers there. Yep, so, I would say terrier yep. too. Yep. Okay, patches a cool dog. We've got Bruce patches and then we have a perfect pair, and that is Buttercup and Button. And they are little tiny chihuahuas, two years old, just best friends, so they do need to be adopted together. Um, They're just adorable. Um, So if you're looking for two little dogs, please consider Buttercup and Button. Cool. Okay. We've got three great dogs, and there's more. Take a look at CapitalHumaneSociety.org. And uh, better yet, go out and see these cool dogs today and tomorrow. Drive safely. Here's Charlene with Hours Open. We will be open today and tomorrow at our Pylock Pet Adoption Center from 11 to 5.30. Okay, my friend, thanks for all that you do. And looking forward Thank to talking you. about more cool cats and dogs next week. Sounds great. Have a great and safe day. Be careful out there. The Capital Humane Society with Charlene making the first place you go when you want to adopt a dog or a cat. I'm Scott Colborn. And you're listening to Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. Next up is Lloyd Arbach. Lloyd is a parapsychologist and author, and he appears every third Saturday on the show. And Lloyd, how are you? Try that again. Lloyd, are you there? I am here. There he is. Okay. It's great to have you here, Lloyd. And how are you and your family doing? Do you want some cold and some ice and snow? No, thank you. Okay, you're gonna go with a, you're gonna go with a no there, huh? Yeah, I'm definitely going with a, a hard no. Yeah. Okay. Yeah, if, we, if, we, if, if we want that, we can go up to the mountains, but yeah. no, we don't want that. That's that's what my car tried to give me this morning—a hard no. Yes. Okay, you teach classes through the Ryan Education Center, and you've got uh, two really interesting classes coming up. Uh, tell me. I about- do, and. Um- something else interesting that's going to be happening for the Ryan Center itself, but the classes are 
uh, both online. We have our field investigations class, so learning to be a ghost hunter. Uh, and if folks are already doing that, if they're following what they see on TV, they're doing it wrong. Mm-hmm. Uh, and uh, we have our methods and findings and what we understand about apparitions and hauntings and poltergeists all covered in that class. And that one starts the first Monday in February. And the other one is a four-week class that happens on Tuesday nights in March. And that is how to choose a psychic or medium and assess the readings. So how do you figure out if the person you're dealing with is real or not? Mm-hmm. But also how to find them. Mm-hmm. Okay, well, let's go back to this first one here. Um Field Investigations, Apparitions, Hauntings, and Poltergeists. Uh, it's an eight-week class, and can people uh, take the class live or later? Yeah, it's set up so that we record it, and we do weekly live lectures, but on top of that, we record them, and people can, you know, at least half of my students do do watch the recording instead. Mm-hmm. They uh, Then they participate in the class discussion, that's online or not. I mean, it, we, our classes are set up really if you just want to get the material and look at the, the lectures and not participate at all, or people can actually take the class and participate and get a certificate at the end, get a grade. We actually have, for that class, we offer a um, short quiz, midterm and final, and it is part of a larger certificate program, but it also has its own certificate if one finishes. And uh, you get to be part of the Office of Paranormal Investigations Network. Okay. Uh, the people that are listening out there, why would they want to take this class? I mean, can't, well, really, they, can't they just watch the TV show and, and be qualified? Yeah, you know, that's the, unfortunately the thousands of ghost hunters out there, and there are thousands of them out there, the majority of them seem to think that if they watch a TV show, they're qualified to do this. Uh, that That's, you know, yeah, granted, if you watch the Food Network, you can probably follow a recipe. But That's a good analogy. I love yeah, it. You, you, uh, you're not going to watch um, a do-it-yourself show uh, on, you know, on one of the other networks uh, and suddenly hang out a shingle as a plumber because you fix your own pipes. Mm-hmm. You're not going to watch cops and suddenly go out and start going after criminals. <laughs> it's it's just not. It doesn't provide the shows. Do not provide any sense of understanding of why people do what they do when they do investigations, of why the phenomena is happening, of how to really deal with it, and it provides a lot of bad folklore. Pop culture has created a lot of pop culture folklore. Mm-hmm. We don't investigate in the dark. I mean, there's no point to that, really. Mm-hmm. Except you want to scare yourself. That, that's fine. So I'm, I'm, um, I'm playing the hapless buffoon here. Um, yeah. Hey, Lloyd, aren't the TV reality shows about ghosts, aren't they real? No, <laughs> they're unscripted, but they are not mm-hmm. real. You know, reality TV, I think there's this real misunderstanding of what reality TV is. Having participated in various shows over the years, and not so much, I've turned down most of those paranormal reality shows for a lot of reasons. Um, The real thing here is that those shows started out, and they really 
dedicated to being entertainment. They're not there to teach anybody anything. They're not there to explore the real phenomena. They're really about the people who do the investigations on those shows, personality-wise. Mm-hmm. And even those folks are not necessarily shown in their full scope because even as one of the guys from Ghost Hunters said years ago, you know, they might shoot 25 to 40 hours in one location. Mm-hmm. They'll shoot some interviews with witnesses. We actually do focus on the peop- on the ghost story itself. And then they cut it down to 22 minutes. And the guys who are doing the investigations have no say in how it's cut down to those 22 minutes. They don't really follow along a script, but the producers and the editors really make those things happen. And even on site, the director will tell the investigators, hey, can you guys come back into that room again and say, say something different? Or can you do this for us for the camera? So in other words, they are not given a script that they are directed to behave a certain way in many instances. And that's not reality. So, Jim, I'm the producer, and I say to Lloyd, okay, Lloyd, I want you to walk in that door and act like you're terrified. And Lloyd says, well, I'm not terrified. I know, but I want you, we got to spice it up. we got to right. juice it up. We want mm-hmm. you to act terrified. Right. Because it's supposed to yeah, be you scary. Know, I, it, it, yeah. It, it's ridiculous. And, and even for the things that I do, I just did a great interview for a show that's going to be coming up on Life After Death. It's a documentary series. But even then, they wanted to shoot what's called B-roll, which is kind of back roll, just just um, filler, you might say. Mm-hmm. And they had me driving their minivan around a neighborhood mm-hmm. where we did the interview. And then they had me walking to the car. I mean, I, didn't, I would not have done that. I would not, you know, they asked me, are you comfortable driving that way? Um, one of my, uh, one of the folks I recommended to this, and this is a really going to be a really good documentary series for Netflix. But the fact is that even the best shows, even sometimes news shows will ask for you to do things that perhaps, you know, they're setting up for you. They're innocuous because they're just background, but it's still not real. Yep, and if you if you know the story of the alleged haunting uh, or the activity, and they ask you to spice it up, because we got to make it more interesting. Right. That's a TV show that's designed to have something as entertainment to hold listeners, so that they can do commercials mm-hmm. and bring revenue in and get ratings. <laughs> yeah, there was there was a woman who did a sh- an episode of Paranormal State a number of years ago who actually was uh, she she basically violated their non-disclosure and was going to be sued by the network except for the fact that they didn't have her sign the appropriate non-disclosure so they really couldn't do anything to her um and that's the problem they have the the witnesses the people who are in the cases sometimes have to sign these horrendous non-disclosures and i've actually turned down shows because of these, these this bit of paperwork but the the episode she had a friendly ghost, and then she had some kind of negative energy in the house that was separate from the friendly ghost. And the story merged the two and made the ghost a real negative entity. Mm-hmm. And she was furious because she was friends with this ghost. Mm-hmm. It didn't reflect the actual show. I mean, the actual story. I, I have told people so many times that if your wonderful grandfather who passes, who loved you so much and you loved him, 
there's no reason to believe that he's going to come back as a uh, evil, angry, vengeful ghost. Right, right. Yeah, personality doesn't change after you've died. Uh, in fact, if anything, if if they've been around a while, they learn that um, it's different. You know, you don't have to be nasty to people. Mm-hmm. And most, and there are bullies. You know, there are people who are bullies in life, and they die. And I wouldn't call them evil or vengeful or anything like that. And that, and that just doesn't happen that way. So this class is field investigations, apparitions, hauntings, and poltergeists. Um, it's eight weeks. It starts Monday, February 2nd. So that's coming right up. February 3rd. Beg your pardon. You want to take a look at RhineEducationCenter.org. Rhine is spelled R-H-I-N-E. And uh, that should get them there, right, Lloyd? Yeah, or the easiest way is just go to Rhine, R-H-I-N-E dot org, and click on the education button. Okay. That's up there, the tab. Uh, and I would say go to the Rhine Center's main site and explore. Yep. Uh, because we're going to actually be offering some monthly remote viewing experiments for Ooh. people to participate in. Cool. Uh, starting next month or the month after. We haven't set the timing for this yet. Boy, when you when you do that, you let me know. I'm going to broadcast it. I will. people know. I will. Okay, a second class coming up. Uh, how to choose a psychic. This is four weeks. It starts Tuesday, March third. Um, this seems like a uh, obvious question, but why would a person want to go to a psychic? What is there? What benefit is there? Well, you know, people go to psychics for all sorts of reasons. Um, sometimes clarity is the reason they might want to go. If uh, and if they go to a medium, it's because they want to get closure or speak to, you know, to speak to a deceased relative. Um, people might go because they're interested in the subject and want to see what it's like. They might, un- unfortunately, people will go to psychics because they expect to get all the correct answers about the future, and the best psychics cannot provide you with definitive answers about the future any more than a, a meteorologist, the weather guy, can tell you what's going <laughs> to really happen five days from now. So the future is always in motion, to paraphrase Yoda, that great Jedi philosopher. And it it really is true. Um, But people will go to see psychics or should go to see a psychic, really if they're interested or they want a second opinion. The one thing that a good psychic will also tell you is that you probably have friends who can give you the same advice. (laughs) Uh, But when people hear from a psychic, it's different. It's just, just important to know that the psychic you're going to is someone who is ethical, who has your best interest at heart, and actually specifically is actually psychic, um, really has an insight of some kind. And really with mediums, that's even more important because you don't want someone just to, you don't want to go for advice. Um, honestly, if people are going to mediums to find out what their late Uncle Harry says about whether they should sell their house or not, uh, if they had not gone to Uncle Harry for that kind of advice when Uncle Harry is alive, there is no reason to go talk to, to try to talk to him now, now that he's dead. Dying does not significantly improve your IQ. Good point. Or your smarts. Well, I can't look forward to that for myself, can I, Jim? I guess not. Okay. <laughs> uh, Lloyd, there, is, are, there might be other benefits, but that's not one of them. It's always a blast talking to you. Um, and I want you, any time that you want to come back for a full segment uh, as a main guest... Uh, you please let me know. It's always so interesting, sure. my friend. Okay. Okay, Lloyd Arbach, and you can find him on Facebook. It's L-O-Y-D. 
Auerbach, A-U-E-R-B-A-C-H. And we talked about Rhine.org. And click on the education button for the two classes coming up. Okay, uh, Lloyd, thanks so much and all the best. Happy New Year, Scott. Lloyd joins us every third Saturday of the month. And uh, coming up in February, it's a leap February. We actually have a 29th. Uh, the comedian and actor Steve Berg, originally from Omaha, comes on the show. And uh, he's been very, very interested in the paranormal and the UFO phenomena. And we're going to start a fifth Saturday. It'll happen about four times during 2020 with Steve Berg. Awesome. That should be a lot of fun. A lot of fun, yeah. Okay, boy, coming up, get ready for this, folks. We've got Preston Dennett. Yay. And he's got a brand new book out called Onboard UFO Encounters. Today's show is simply called E.T. Stories with Preston Dennett. I'm going to take the bottom of the hour break. We'll be right back with our main guest, Preston Dennett. And Jim, what do you think of the uh, Jack Reacher coffee? It's good and strong. Oh, my goodness. Oh, yeah. Good stuff. I poured this into the thermos today, and I just stood over the thermos and just inhaled deeply. Mm, yeah, and I said, wonderful smell. Oh, yeah. This is bliss. <laughs> Okay, folks, stay tuned. We're going to be right back. Boy, we've got a great show for you with Preston Dennett. E.T. Stories coming right up. Scott Colborn with Exploring Unexplained Phenomena. And Jim is over here. We've got a, our coffee cups topped off. And uh, our next guest is the author of many, many books. Uh, the Healing Power of UFOs is a book that runs... I think close to 500 pages. Uh, it is a weighty tome, a great contribution to the field. He's got a brand new book out. I'm really excited about this. It's Onboard UFO Encounters. And I've argued for so long that it's, so, it's vitally important for us to listen to what the witnesses are saying. Right? If we were investigators... We would want to talk to the witnesses and get their stories. We don't necessarily need to hear from three or four pundits who themselves have never talked to the witnesses. It's so important to talk to the witnesses. So what Preston's done is he's captured their stories in this book, and their stories are mesmerizing. Uh, ladies and gentlemen, welcome to the broadcast, our friend and colleague, Preston Dennett. Hi, Preston. Good morning. Hi, Scott. How are you? Uh, we are unthawing here. We have mm -hmm. a bright blue sky, but we have very cold temperatures, and we're counteracting that with pure willpower and caffeine. <laughs> Works for me. Uh, okay, so just as a comparison now, I mean, we're basically frozen back here. What's the weather like where you're at? Oh, it's freezing. It's like 60 degrees. Oh, wow. Oh. <laughs> Poor baby. <laughs> yeah, they're probably, yeah, do they even have, like, furnaces and houses out there? Yes, we do. <laughs> Will you turn I, them on yeah, twice I'm, a year? I'm, I'm, <laughs> I'm looking forward to summer. You know, I miss the nice 80, 90 degrees. Just now getting get light again. Mm -hmm. well, we had snow yeah. and ice and rain and sleet and freezing drizzle and... Uh, it's supposed to get very, very windy later today and tomorrow. 
It's, uh, let's see, 11 degrees right now. How about that? Wow. You have a, uh, a reason for a lot of the books that you write. And as our listeners have found, we are so fortunate to have you on every first Saturday for the seen and the unseen and these amazing stories that you share with us. So was it the fact that you had collected so many stories that prompted the writing of the book Onboard UFO Encounters, your brand new one? What, what was the reason for that? Um, well, I think there's multiple reasons. Uh, ultimately, I do feel that this is a very important subject. Yes. It's not getting near enough attention. And yeah, I've got so many of these accounts. Uh, people, it takes them a long time to find someone who will listen to them. Um, I've had people you know, tell me that they've told nobody about mm-hmm. what's happened to them. Um, perhaps their wife, one friend, that's about it. And uh, these are among the most extensive cases in my files, for sure. And uh, yeah, I have been sitting on some of these for a while. Some are actually brand new as well. You just destroyed one of the myths that the debunkers like to float. Oh, it's just all these people are attention-seeking. They just want to get their names and headlines and, and front pages, and that's exactly the opposite, isn't it? Yeah, it really is. Um, the guy from England, um, who's in the last chapter, was very nervous about talking to me. He had only talked to his wife and his best friend, and insisted that I not use his name. And of course I didn't. Um, most people don't want their name used. Um, there's a few who are like, yeah, I'm okay with it. You know, I've got nothing to hide. And they're very vocal about their experiences. Mm-hmm. But as a general rule, no, they don't talk about it. Well, it's a great book. And so let's jump into uh, one of the stories. Now you've got, uh, if I understand correctly, you've got 15 in here. And these are very in-depth stories, not just a page. So who do you want to start with today? Oh, gosh. You know, one of the stories I've never talked about because it's just so extensive, and I've been researching it for so long, and that's the first chapter, um, which I called The Experiment, which is about a gentleman named Ruben, uh, who's this amazing guy, very kind, very funny, very intelligent, uh, has a large family, and... Uh, has had experiences from a very early age uh, growing up in a government housing project called Bazelon Homes. Uh, he was six years old, out playing with his friends one morning uh, when this UFO showed up. He's like, guys, look, what's that? It was a perfect metallic saucer. was quite low and getting lower. And as they watched, this thing actually landed right in front of Hanson Dam. This is here in Southern California, San Fernando, uh, not far actually from where I live right now. And yeah, this thing lands. A group of kids comes running up to it. It's right on the playground there, and uh, they're they're surrounding it. It's a fairly large saucer, 20, 30 feet across, metallic, no apparent markings. And all the kids start to realize that this is very strange, and they get afraid. Ruben, however, for whatever reason, doesn't. He's fascinated, and he actually climbs up on top of this thing and starts climbing around it. It's incredible. So he's looking for an opening. 
and smells this sort of weird metallic odor or something comes upon this doorway. Very small, but just big enough for him to sort of look inside. And he's amazed to see all these really beautiful, bright lights, you know, magenta, pink, orange, pulsating. And next thing he knows, he's inside this thing, and he's walking around on this sort of metallic grate. He said that, I'm like, oh, gosh, this is exactly how you know, another person I interviewed described the interior of UFO, sort of this metallic grate like it's in a sidewalk in New York, say. And uh, he doesn't really remember much after this except going deeper. And then next thing he knows, he's coming out, and uh, he's very disoriented. It's a few hours later. He rushes home, sees his mom and a strange girl sitting in the living room. He's like, who's that? She looks Chinese. And his mom's like, that's your sister. What's wrong with you? Go to your room. And uh, so he's pretty disoriented and goes to his room and has one of the most incredible experiences of his life. He suddenly and spontaneously starts levitating. And uh, that, t- that. that tends to get somebody's attention. That would, yeah. <laughs> right? Um, mind you, I mean, he is a young kid, but uh, you remember age seven. Um, mm-hmm. Certainly he's um, got very vivid memories of all of this. And uh, it insists that he was, yeah, actually levitating. Mm-hmm. He was walking along the ceiling with his hands, touching the light fixtures, the, the blinds. Finally comes down on this little red couch and goes running back out, out into the kitchen. He's like, Mom, I just flew. She's like, you're crazy. Go outside and play. <laughs> I'm just dismissing it. So he does. He goes outside and he's playing. And uh, they're playing hide and seek. There's a whole group of neighborhood kids there. When suddenly, you know, he's it. He has to go count by the big tire there and count up to 100 and mm-hmm. wait for everyone to hide, which he does. And suddenly, he levitates again. He flies right up to the top of the housing complex and can see everybody. All the kids, where they are, can hear them and floats back down right to their hiding place and says, found you. And does this a number of times, completely freaking the kids out and stopping the game. Because <laughs> they couldn't believe it. And frankly, neither could he. He could not quite understand what was happening at this point. But knew that he was flying up to the top of this building somehow. And could these kids down below see him up there? Um, you know, it's not clear to him. Um, but apparently, yes, because mm-hmm. they had very frightened looks on their faces. It was very clear to everyone that something very strange was happening here. So it stopped the game, but events weren't over yet. This is how, and this is a lifelong story, and this is how it all began in this one day, which was just crazy about what happened next. Um, All the kids are out, you know, it's starting to get dusk. Everyone's playing, the adults are out, and suddenly this object shows up. It's small at first, sort of an orb of light, but grows very quickly in size until it's really taking up a good portion of the sky. It's a huge object. It's covered with colored lights, the same colored lights you'd seen before, that inside the UFO that morning. And everyone's seeing this. Everyone starts panicking. All the kids are rushed inside by the parents and the 
then are pointing at this thing. What is it, a helicopter? No, it's not a helicopter. It was totally silent. And finally, it just darts off. Um, his parents were out shopping, uh, came home to find the whole neighborhood in a complete uproar. And uh, that, you'd think, would be the end of that day, but it wasn't. That night, Reuben wakes up and finds himself floating again. He's like, what is going on? And he's heading for his bedroom door. And he's like, oh, no, I'm going to crash into my bedroom door. He can't control himself. He's paralyzed and goes, boom, right into the door and through it, through the closed door. Mm. I have no idea how that can happen, but certainly anyone who's done you know, research into abductions knows that this does happen. And he's taken right out of his house, floated up to the base of Hanson Dam, and lo and behold, there's that UFO again. The same one that abducted him literally, gosh, 12 hours earlier. And he's pulled inside, put on a sort of a dentist's chair, another description I've heard a number of times. sees a huge porthole in front of him, and it's filled with stars, and they're zipping around. It's clear he's in space now. And he doesn't remember a lot of what happened. He could hear strange sounds of, like, air compressing. Uh, saw some beings, but didn't get a good look at them. And uh, next thing he knows, it's morning, and he's back in bed. So he tells his mom, he's like, Mom, somebody took me last night. And she's mm, a little skeptical, but he insisted. And when it happened the next night, she's like, Mom, it happened again. Um, she, you know, the same exact thing, she decides he's, she's going to tie him to the bed and, and does. Ties him to the bed with you know, some strips of bed sheets and ties one arm to the bed and his other arm to his little brother who he sleeps in the same bed with. And it doesn't stop the abduction. Another abduction happens. This third abduction, he's physically examined. It was a very long and somewhat painful examination which he didn't really want to get into. You could see he was embarrassed about it. Mm -hmm. uh, but it went over rather quickly, and he's placed back in bed. And the next morning he wakes up, and he's still tied up, except now he's underneath the bed. And his mom's like, what happened? How did you do this? He's like, I'm telling you, I didn't do it. Somebody's taking me. So that's how it all began. And boy, I could an hour just in this guy's story alone. But to you know, cut it short a little bit, they end up moving out of this housing complex into an apartment where they had unexplained lights filling the house, uh, weird things happening, strange noises, and it was still going on. They shipped him off to his grandmother's house in Fresno um, for a couple of reasons, because it was getting pretty hairy in his neighborhood in terms of gang activity and drugs and things like this. And he also could help out with the farm work up there in Fresno where his grandparents lived. Uh, that didn't stop the abductions. There, this UFO would land and he'd be sucked up right into it. Um, it always landed in the same place in this one field. And he goes up to his neighbor one time and he says, you know, I keep seeing lights in this field. And his neighbor's like, yeah, I've seen it too. There's this object that lands about 3 o'clock, not every morning, but often. And Ruben's like, wow, you know, that's the, this, his neighbor is seeing the same object. Somebody's validating his story. Mm -hmm. So 
it goes on and on. He's like 17 years old, getting pretty nervous about, you know, his friends who are getting into gang activity. And he's like, I've got to do something about my life. Um, he feels like he's always being watched. He feels like some sort of, got some sort of weird programming in him. I don't know. He feels like there's something very special going on with his life that he can't quite put his finger on. Anyway, he decides he's going to join the Marines. <laughs> uh, he's 17 years old. He's not qualified. Um, he, his father was in the military, and his father says he'll sign a waiver. But he has one piece of advice. Don't sign up for any special project. Don't volunteer. Do your job. <laughs> right? So that's what he does. He signs up for the Marines and ends up getting shipped off to Camp Pendleton. When he told me that, I'm like, oh, my gosh, Pendleton. Because I've got a number of stories from Pendleton of crashed UFOs and um, things like this. So I'm like, oh, gosh, there's, this could get bad. <laughs> and uh, really, right away, weird things started to happen. He had his security clearance bump, bumped up to a crypto clearance. I knew he was 17 years old. And suddenly he hears two soldiers, um, a corporal and a higher-ranking officer, right outside his office, talking about how the military is holding a UFO uh, in captive. And he's like, oh my gosh, they, I should not be hearing this. Why are they doing, why are they talking in front of me like this? Um, he thought it was an accident first. Now he realizes it was a setup because suddenly he's brought into a room. This is you know, a short time later uh, with a small group of other Marines all young Marines, young men, and asked if he would like to join a project for the betterment of the country and blah, blah, blah. He's trying to figure out what this um, sergeant is talking about. And so thinking to himself, no, there's no way. You know, I'm never going to join up for any special project. I'm not going to disobey my father's advice. Being driven through the desert to a military base and, uh, he keeps blacking out, and when he wakes up, they're all wearing orange jumpsuits. Then he blacks out again, and they're wearing green fatigues again. Then orange jumpsuits. And he's looking around at the other soldiers who all seem to be hypnotized or in a daze, um, like him. And they go through a number of checkpoints, uh, which are very difficult to get through because it's very high security, and finally ends up at this military hangar and there's that sergeant again, and he's giving another spiel about how this is all for the betterment of your country. When in walks a group of reptilian humanoids and uh, starts talking to these soldiers. So Ruben is completely freaked out at this point. He didn't want to describe the figures. He says it was just too frightening. Uh, but I did get you know, a fairly good description of these reptilian-looking Humanoid, human-looking, but sort of scaly skin, very weird eyes, very tall, very muscular. They're wearing special sort of jumpsuits with weird insignias on them. And told Ruben that he was going to be part of this project. And uh, they pull open the hangar doors, and lo and behold, there's this giant UFO. So he nearly passed out. It was very much like the UFO he had seen you know, some years earlier as a kid, except it wasn't shiny, shiny silver. It was more dull gray. 
but there was a, a little mobile staircase up to it. There were soldiers all around it studying it. It was clearly, you know, in their possession and fully operational. And uh, he has you know, some other memories of being hypnotized and things like this. But suddenly, blacks out at some point and wakes up and he's back at Camp Pendleton, maybe a day, two days later, and is so traumatized, he can't move. He can't even walk up the stairs. Yeah, he's standing in front of his barracks, and he sort of comes to. And yeah, another, another Marine walks up and says, Soldier, are you okay? And he says, No, I'm not. Can you help me? And so this other Marine helps him up the stairs into his barracks. Yeah, very traumatizing event for him. And that's when he kind of realized, oh my gosh, you know, that conversation that I had heard where these two people were talking about a crashed UFO was not an accident. They set him up. And he now, now realizes that something very strange is going on with his life. And he's extremely concerned. And doesn't have much time to worry about it because, boom, you know, a year later, he's shipped off to Vietnam. Mm-hmm. And boy, oh boy, his experiences don't end there either. Well, let's pick it up right there when we come back from the top of the hour break. Um, this is Preston Dennett, and we're talking about E.T. Stories. This is his new book, On Board UFO Encounters. And here's a quote from Ruben. This is back when he was younger. I noticed a disc just hovering there. There were portholes going all around the disc. It kind of tilted downward, and I could see like a railing at the midsection of it. There were these people, but their arms were longer than regular arms, and they waved back at us. Wow. Okay, always fun, uh, Preston. What do you have in your cup this morning? Are you a tea guy? Oh, I, I love tea, but I really prefer some fresh ground French roast. Okay. Super strong. Okay, good man, good man. <laughs> okay, folks, this is a chance for you now to fill that cup up with your favorite beverage. We're going to be right back and hope you're enjoying this as much as I am. This is Preston Dennett and E.T. Stories. This is from his brand new book, Onboard UFO Encounters. Jim, what do you think? This is interesting. Wow. Very interesting. Just riveting. Yes, it is. Okay, folks, we'll be right back with Preston Dennett after this. The Exploring Unexplained Phenomena radio show. With us is Preston Dennett, and we're having a whole morning of E.T. stories. Uh, Preston, before we go back to Ruben and his account, um, where is the book right now in the in the publication process? Has it been released now and printed? Um, no, not yet. It's supposed to be this month, so it could be like within about a week or two. Um, but it's very close. I've submitted the final proofs, so uh, I've got a one advanced copy. Looks great. Cool. So it should be very soon. That's really something for an author to get that first copy and hold it in your hands. You know, all the work that you put into that to actually hold it in your hands. Wow. Oh, I love it. Thrilling. I remember the first time that happened with UFO Healing some, gosh, 25 years ago. And that was a book that my late friend uh, Hunter Gray, formerly known as John Salter, that was a book that he told a lot of us about. That was how I first heard about you, Preston, many, many years ago. 
Uh, On Board UFO Encounters, this is the brand new book. And Preston, when that is published, you be sure to let me know. And I'm going to help people become aware of it. So let's let's go back to Ruben now. Um, If you summarized his story later in life now, have the... Have the encounters continued, and does he have, from the vantage point now of age and some wisdom, does he have an idea of why he's been involved? Um, no, he really doesn't. Um, he thinks it has something to do with the military. Uh, his family is involved. Um, his cousins, you know, his friends. Uh, he really doesn't know. Um, he's contacted, you know, contacted Jail and Hynek, who put him in touch with Itabel Epperson. He's contacted a number of major researchers searching for answers. Uh, back when it was all going on, there were no real, really, not a lot of information out there about UFOs. Uh, so he thought he was kind of alone with all this. Uh, he's not. I think this is happening to a lot of people. Uh, but yeah, it's been a lifelong experience with him. He had sightings in Vietnam. He had got badly injured, had strange experiences while recovering in the hospital, came home, had a continuing flood of UFO experiences, got married, divorced quickly because ETs kept showing up and scaring the wits out of his wife. Uh, that so will it's do been it. been a real struggle for him. I was a facilitator of a close encounter support group that got founded in 1988, uh, 1988 here in Lincoln. And what you said is so accurate. Um, the attrition in terms of divorces, relationships breaking up, families uh, separating is especially high with that group of people. Because, Preston, if you had one of these experiences that Ruben has had, who can you tell? You can't. Right. You can't. You know, you're you're a, an accountant. People pride you on your your accuracy, your truthfulness. If you came to work and said over the you know coffee pot, "Hey, I just was on a UFO last night." <laughs> yeah, I'm not sure how well I'd be received. You can't. You can't <laughs> go to your next door neighbor out watering their lawn and say, "Hey." Uh, I've been taken by UFOs. I've been on board the craft. They even asked me if, if I wanted to fly one. Um, yeah, you might get squirted with a hose. Just researching this stuff has kind of split up my family a little bit. I mean, yes. we're all good now, but back when I started, my father was pretty upset. Mm-hmm. My brothers you know, teased me mercilessly. I'm like, listen, you'll find out this is real. And... Uh, you know, I finally got mouth to come around, uh, but initially, yeah, it was very difficult for our my family, and uh, we, had, you know, none of us were actually even abducted. Yeah, well, my family, uh, mom and dad were really supportive because in 1974 they were part of a um, small group sighting. Uh, my girlfriend Deb at the time, mom and dad and I saw a silvery sphere that floated over uh, next to our neighbor's house, three to 500 feet up in the air, going from south to north. And so they knew of my results after about a day and a half of trying to call everybody that I could, coming up with a big fat zero in terms of prosaically, naturally explaining what we saw. 
So I was really lucky. They they knew there was something out there that wasn't wasn't normal, and so I got a lot of encouragement. But if if you have a UFO close encounter and you're taken on board, and your partner, your spouse isn't, that's a huge huge deal. You know, if you can if you can talk to them and have a level of discourse of trust and respect, that's a huge deal. But I've heard from so many people that were the partner of the spouse that weren't being taken, they began to wonder if by proximity they were also going to be taken because of the activity going on with their respective partner spouse. And some of those people could not handle that at all. Yeah, and I have to say that usually they are taken. In most of the cases that I've investigated, the person is having very extensive contact, multiple onboard experiences. The people around them, particularly spouses and uh, children, are taken as well. And Ruben did remarry, and uh, his wife is much more supportive. His family is very supportive. He's got a large family. But a lot of them are having experiences, so they know. I mean, he brought... His grandmother actually brought it up when he was staying there as a kid at her house. And apparently she knew what was happening to him because she brought him out into a field once and says, I want you to pay very close attention to what's going to happen. And shortly later, a number of UFOs landed out in the field and she warned him about them. She's like, you know, she has a, she's steeped in sort of this Hispanic traditional culture and uh, sort of had a religious viewpoint towards these things and told him, warned him about them. And uh, to this day, he wonders if these, you know, there's a religious connection to his experiences that's intertwined with him, which I do see in a number of cases. Uh, so he's, he's open-minded about what he's dealing with, but overall, he's not very happy about it. His experiences have been pretty frightening, not super positive. They haven't healed him. They haven't provided him with any, you know, answers to the universe or anything like this. Uh, it's been a long, scary journey for him, and it's still ongoing. Has he been told that he's part of a project, an ongoing project? Um, no, not in so many words. He ended up leaving the military because he felt that for sure there was something going on there, mm-hmm. and he still has memories surfacing of you know, being taken to meet reptilians. Uh, He stayed in food service in the military for a while and had weird experiences there. He'd end up, you know, working the late, late hours, the early, early mornings, 3 a.m., and these humanoids would show up at the base that were clearly not human. In fact, he got a good look at them once, walked up to him to see if he was, you know, freaking out or not, and saw he could see through the back of their neck in sort of a transparent way, and it completely freaked him out because it looked like how he described it was embryonic insects uh, have a very transparent skin, and you can see their organs, like hornets and things like this. He could see inside these guys' bodies, and uh, they seemed to know that uh, they were showing themselves to him because they kind of gave veiled comments about that. But yeah, it's been very tough for him because a lot of this is shrouded in amnesia. Um, He hasn't undergone hypnosis or anything like this. 
uh, but still continues to have memories surfacing of his time in the military. Yeah, Jim, if, if Ruben invited you to stay with him over a weekend, um, would you be prepared <laughs> if he said, and my friend, being truthful, there's something you should know. We have a guest bedroom. You're welcome to stay with us. But you may have an experience that you didn't anticipate. Yeah, I, uh, I, I think I'd hang around just to see what happened. You think you'd do I it, think huh? so, yeah. Yeah, one time we were interviewing. I was interviewing him. And he hangs up the phone, and his little son comes up to him and says, Daddy, the star was in the street. And Ruben's thinking, oh, really? When? Last night? And his little son is like, no, no, just now when you were on the phone with that guy. A star landed in the street. And so Ruben calls me up. He's freaked out. He's like, aliens were there. They're listening to our interview. I'm worried about you. You know, I think you might start having experiences. And he became very protective. I'm like, listen, you know, this sort of thing has happened before. Don't worry. I'm not going to stop researching. I'm, I'm going to be fine. Uh, but, man, oh, man, it made me realize that these ETs are oh, very aware of watching him very closely and apparently watching me as well. Yeah, I uh, have got it someplace buried in my files, but at my uh, first former store, uh, I had been working with a young lady who had had ongoing close encounter on board experiences, and uh, she was being taken to an underground facility in and around a place called Artesia. And we did a search of the name Artesia, and when she described the topography in a river nearby, it really matched Artesia, New Mexico, with the Pecos River. And um, then I got this letter that came damaged in the U.S. mail. So it came to me in a plastic envelope saying, sorry, this got damaged during handling. And I opened it up, and it was a letter that was anonymous, but it was signed, uh, uh, and it was basically talking about her activities, uh, that the involvement was unfortunate, but it was have to happen. And so, yeah, sometimes there is this sense that that there is a a watch going on. There is an oversight going on, and we we never determined if it was just somebody poking fun. Um, we believed fairly firmly that whoever wrote that was intimately involved with the details of her experiences, and um, you know the old reverse psychology. Tell somebody not to do something so that you get them interested. <laughs> so that, that could have been working. So um, this is Preston Dennett, and the show is called E.T. Stories. Um, this term E.T., Preston, it's been used by a lot of people. Um, oftentimes these beings look just like us. You've described uh, some reptilian-looking beings that would look very, very different. Uh, almost, I think of some Star Trek characters that come to mind. Um, that overall term ET, extraterrestrial, are we sure that they actually come from a distant planet? Um, no, we're not. And often they're very tight-lipped about where they come from. Not always. I mean, there's one case in the book 
um, this lady, uh, Ann Witherspoon, they did tell her specifically where they came from. Finally, after a lifetime of experiences, you know, throughout her childhood, she had these grays coming in, taking her, um, UFOs landing in her backyard, lots of weird stuff going on, which she completely denied until about 1988. She walks into a bookstore and sees this gray alien on a book cover. It's Communion by Whitley Strieber, and she completely freaks out. She po points it out to her husband, Harry. He's like, oh, my God, that looks familiar to me, too. They were both having experiences, and that really woke her up. She started realizing what her weird nighttime experiences were and began having fully conscious experiences. And to you know, make a really long story short, she had this one amazing, fully conscious encounter where in walks a gray alien. She's awake, sits up in bed. She's fully conscious. The gray says, I love, spreads his arm and says, I love you, which really shocks her um, and uh, starts to talk to her about why she was contacted, who he is, where he's from. He said he was from a binary star system and that there were multiple planets, and he showed her these little sort of brass sort of discs with markings on them and showed her his solar system. He pointed out and says, this is where I come from, and gave her all kinds of explanations. He said, the reason I'm contacting you is we've been following your genetic line since for thousands of years to biblical times, he told her. And if it wasn't absolutely vitally necessary, we wouldn't be doing it. We're following your friend's genetic line as well, he told her. And just told her all this stuff. And the weirdest part of this whole experience was, was when he held, holds up an image of Whitley Strieber's book, Communion, mm -hmm. in his hand, and says, everything that this gentleman wrote about us is true. Everything is completely accurate, what he said. So, I mean, just picture that. I mean, a, a gray E.T. holding up the book Communion. <laughs> Talk about an Strange, endorsement right? for a book. Wow. <laughs> right? The only E.T. book review I, I know of. <laughs> there was a story That's that it. Whitley Strieber himself told about... Um, he went into a New York City bookstore when Communion had been released. And as an author, he was so pleased to see this big display of the book Communion. And so he walked over there uh, because he was kind of curious about, you know, what people were saying and observing. And there were these two individuals that were, uh, for the weather, uncharacteristically wearing these uh, overcoats with the collars turned up and hats and sunglasses, so you could barely see any of their face or their head. And um, he overheard them saying stuff like, well, he's got this right, but this isn't right. And this is good, but this isn't. Right, so, I remember that. Yeah, he, he tried to introduce himself and to kind of walk into their their space, and he said he got such a feeling of, you better get out of here. 
we don't like you and we don't want to talk to you. Mm. And so he turned right around. Um, as an aside, that reminded me of my last date, you know, that feeling of, okay. Oh, sorry uh, to hear that. I just got you out to the car and I will take you back up to your front door. Goodbye. So anyhow, uh, this is Preston Dennett. The book is Onboard UFO Encounters. And let's start another sh- uh, story here, Preston. Yeah, I mean, gosh, there's so many some very interesting stories. About. And you don't have to, if you've got another story that you want to tell that's not in the book, you're welcome to, okay? We're just calling this E.T. Stories with Preston Dennett. <laughs> um, one story that is just fascinating to me, I think I may have mentioned it before, but it's so unusual, um, occurred to this entertainer, James Santiago, who has since become a really good friend prior to passing away from prostate cancer. But just this amazing guy, very funny, very, gosh, flamboyant, could just describe things with this way of just have you in stitches. So at any rate, he's off to go to Canada for a, a booking for a show and hates car rides, always wants to fly, but meets this lady um, who's actually the mother of his makeup artist. And she says, I'll drive you there. You know, I have to go there anyway. He's like, no, no, I'm not going to drive with you. She's very eccentric. And he's like, no, you know, I love you, but I'm not going to go with you. But she worked him and insisted that she drive him to through the Rocky Mountains to Vancouver. And he's like, fine, I'll do it. And against his better judgment, he goes with her in this spotless Monte Carlo uh vehicle, which is just amazing, and uh, it's like a few hours out when she says, do you have any coins on you? And he's like, well, yeah, I do. And she's like, would you mind if we got rid of them? Because I don't want any copper in my car. He's like, oh, great. This lady is crazy. Wow. Why don't you want copper? She says, well, you should know UFOs are following me, and they track me with the copper. And he's like, okay. Um, all right. And they pull over, and he gets rid of his change. And she says, you don't believe me, do you? He's like, well, you know, I don't know. I don't, gosh, I don't know. She says, well, you'll see. So they're driving through the Rocky Mountains, when suddenly she says, do you feel it? He says, feel what? She says, the pressure. He says, no, I don't feel anything. She says, we're about to see a UFO. He's like, oh, God, great. And suddenly he feels this pressure pressing down on his body. This is something I've heard a number of witnesses describe. This is basically how ETs paralyze people. They sort of put this pressure on your body. And it grew and grew and grew until it started to become very obvious and somewhat uncomfortable. And boom, this UFO shows up. She slams the accelerator down to the floor and starts screeching around these mountain roads trying to avoid this thing which is locked onto their vehicle. It's 20, 40 feet up, right overhead. And uh, James is absolutely thrilled. He says it's the most beautiful thing he's ever seen in his life. It's sort of this turquoise aquamarine, 50 feet across. It's lighting up the entire interior of the car. And uh, this is where it gets, I mean, this is the strangest thing I think I've ever heard in terms of uh, UFO story. 
she turns to him and says, open the glove, glove compartment and empty it out. And he's like, okay. You know, he's used to her strange requests by this point. And he does. And she says, there's a secret button on the base of this glove compartment. Press the button and pull out what's in the secret compartment. And he finds the button finally and snaps his fingers, finds this little package in there and pulls it out. It's wrapped in purple velvet cloth. And he unwraps it and can't believe his eyes. It's this giant, very heavy gold bracelet-looking thing covered with precious jewels. And he's like, what is this? And she says, put it between us, put your hand on it, and start rubbing it. This will drive the UFO away. They go, okay. (laughs) And that's what they do. And it works. And after a few minutes, this object just lifts up and darts off. And she doesn't say anything at first, but he holds up this bracelet, which, mind you, is several pounds. A woman could not wear this thing. It's very, very large, like for a giant or something. And he's like, what the heck is this? And she's hesitant to tell him, but finally she says, it's from Atlantis. It's an Atlantean bracelet. And he's like, well, where did you get it? And she tells this incredible story. This is, this lady is incredible. She's an extremely, I know who she is. She recently passed away. She's a very wealthy, very famous artist who has paintings all throughout the United States and the world. Um, some hanging in very prestigious institutions. She's extremely rich and lives out of hotels and is just super eccentric. And she told him that as a young woman, she was scuba diving off the coast of Spain, I believe it was, when a voice came into her head and guided her to this object, and she pulled it off the ocean floor. And it was from Atlantis, she said. And she said a lot of people are living today are actually reincarnated from Atlantis and they're sort of ushering in the new age and uh, she's part of all of this. She says it's a very precious um, priceless artifact from Atlantis and he had no choice but to believe her because he had the thing in his hand and I questioned him on this over and over to get a good idea of what this thing was and he, he was just baffled by it. He said it had to be worth millions of dollars. That sort of sea foam green emerald like jewels all encrusted around it. It was absolutely beautiful filigree work um, and was just so heavy and large. And uh, she insisted it had this, this weird power. And, but he had to wrap it up and put it back in its secret hiding place and she didn't want to talk about it anymore. Well, I, I hope, God, you know, God bless her and her family that she passed, but I hope there was provisions for somebody to look in that secret compartment. Uh, I hope so, too. Um, her daughter is, she does have a daughter who's well aware of her UFO proclivities. Um, and uh, Warren James, actually, she, said, she told him weird things happen. If you're going to travel with her, you should be aware of that. <laughs> Didn't specifically mention UFOs until, you know, after the trip, but they ended up arriving in Vancouver, and as they're driving up into the city, she's like, see that star? He's like, yep. She's like, that's not a star, that's another UFO. He's like, oh, come on. 
you know, we saw a UFO, I get it, but that's a star. And suddenly this thing darts off really fast. It's like, oh my God, I'm, I'm such a moron, I'm so sorry. <laughs> um, so yeah, UFOs have followed her everywhere. And he continued to have more sightings with her until, you know, she ended up leaving and he never saw her again. Mm-hmm. But it turned out he's an abductee. I, as I questioned him, he revealed that he had had an experience as a very young man up in Oregon where he saw gray ETs. Uh, he'd often wake up with marks on his body as a young man and had these amazing UFO dreams, um, had a very close-up UFO setting involving missing time. He was a full-on abductee, but just didn't know it. Uh, so it was really one of the more amazing stories I've ever heard. Um, let's come back from the break, and I'd like to have you ponder this question, because it's been asked before. Okay, so these people that have these experiences with the ETs, and oftentimes they are healed by ETs, or there's an interaction, why didn't they save your friend James? Why didn't they save my friend Hunter Gray? Let's think about that and come back and talk about that, okay? Yeah, you got it. Preston Dennett, when he is not bookkeeping and accounting by day, he is a sleuth of all things UFO and ET at night and on the weekends. And he's the author of multiple books. This brand new book that is very, very close to print is On Board UFO Encounters and uh Jot down this website. It's PrestonDennett.Weebly.com. If that's too much for you, all you have to do is type into your favorite search engine, Preston Dennett. I don't know how this guy does this, but boom, it pops right up there. So Preston Dennett, and uh, you'll read more there about his books, his activities. Always one of our favorite guests. And stay tuned because we've got more E.T. stories with Preston Dennett coming up right after this. Scott Colborne and Jim Shorney, our special guest Preston Dennett. Coming up next week is a first-time guest, Heather Ash Amera. And she's written a book called The Warrior Heart, a simple process to transform confusion into clarity and pain into peace. Jim, we just had a phone call there. Yeah, we did. A listener called in. Her name was Loy, and she was effusive in her praise of, of Preston and his books. Cool. And uh, the, the Alien Healing book is her favorite. She said she, she loves it. The Healing Power of UFOs. Mm-hmm. Did you catch that comment, Preston? Yeah. You've got yeah. another fan out there. Yep. Awesome. Okay, so uh, my friend Hunter Gray is passed. Uh, incredible guy. You met James, uh, did you pronounce his name Santiago? Yeah. And um, great guy in so many ways, and, and he passed. So the question is, why didn't the E.T. say these guys? Yeah, it's a great question. You know, Anne Witherspoon, who I, whose case I told you about, she passed away of the flu at age 50. Um, they didn't help her either. Um, gosh, it's hard to say because there are a number of cases, you know, in this book where they have helped people. 
There was yes. one lady who was diagnosed with leukemia, disappeared. One lady had severe heart problems. They cured that. Uh, there was one case involving a UFO which landed in front of a volcano prior to it exploding, and it actually scooped up thousands of people, saving their lives. Uh, one lady had that was suffering from a diabetic coma. They tall whites showed up and insisted that she rush to the hospital. So they do intervene in a lot of cases, but not always. And it's very hard to figure out. There's one case, which is not in the book, um, involving a lady who was in a car accident, and she was pulled from the scene of the accident into a UFO and healed of most of her injuries, but not all of them. And the ETs told her that she had actually died in this accident, but that she wasn't supposed to die, and that they were healing her. They, her face had been completely torn up. They healed her face, they healed a bunch of her broken bones, but left a lot of injuries and told her that they couldn't heal her completely because part of her injuries were karmic, and she had to go through this. And I think the answer might lie in that direction, that each of us have a, sort of a purpose for coming here to Earth to learn certain things, and once our mission is complete, well, they're not going to intervene because it's time for us to move on. Mm-hmm. That is not what people think it is. It's really just a wonderfully healing transition it's like moving from one door to another we've got all this stigma and taboo about it but it's not necessarily a bad thing so i think from the et perspective um, people who are not being healed are not being hurt by any means it's just time for them to move on kind of speculating here but yeah there does seem to be some sort of karmic um tie to all of these things about who's being healed and why and when and I don't know. It's, it's very, very curious, and I don't quite understand it, uh, but I Hunter, sure would like to. Hunter Gray, um, who championed your first book, UFO Healings, uh, he had um, the first conscious recalled experiences in about 1988, and he says, or said very simply in multiple conversations with me that the ETs were friends. They augmented his physical condition to help him keep on keeping on because of his labor and civil rights work and helping bring people together. And he documented all the physical, physiological changes that happened as a result of their, uh, their health intervention. Later in life, he contracted lupus, uh, and hardly anybody gets healed or walks away from lupus. He did. Right. Um, And so, you know, if I had Hunter here, I think he would have probably echoed something about very similar to what you just said. Uh, I don't want to, for respect for him and his family, to put words in, in his mouth, but... Um, he was a guy that, that championed the fact that, that not all UFO contact is negative, traumatic, bad, evil, malevolent. We just hadn't heard about all the positive, good contact. And then thanks to people like yourself, Preston, we're hearing a lot more about that. 
Yeah, you know, I have to tell you, writing this book, it's not all puppies and rainbows by any means. The guy I interviewed in England, uh, his experiences were not particularly pleasant. Mm-hmm. He's not being healed. Um, he had some pretty painful experiments done on him. But other people, boy, they love the ETs. Literally feel like they're absolutely friends, family even. Yeah, the lady, the, lady, the lady you write about that was within 24 hours of having 25% of one of her lungs removed had an intervention, and then they said, well, this must be a spontaneous healing because you don't need the surgery. And they were, the medical authorities were just shocked. Yeah, they usually are. <laughs> it's very difficult for the doctors to, to figure this stuff out, especially because the witnesses are not often forthcoming. Um, by and large, most of these people do have evidence of alien implants as well, which I think is an important thing to bring up, because that certainly turns up fairly consistently in these accounts. Uh, and definitely has something to do with health, I think. The lady you mentioned who had her uh, lungs healed, she would also be taken on board and have these sort of uh, rejuvenation sessions where they would just fill her with light and just good feeling. Um, so, yeah, it can be very pleasant to you know be taken on board sometimes. Um, one guy had a UFO sighting uh, very close up, and it gave him the best feeling of well-being and love that he has ever had in his life. Mm-hmm. Better than any woman he's you know, been intimate with, better than any, anything he's ever felt, was you know, this blast of love from a UFO that was hovering over him. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, it can be very wonderful. One of the stories in Preston's book, Onboard UFO Encounters, talks about a woman who's had a lifetime of, of uh, pregnancies that didn't come to full term and suddenly were not there. She was told repeatedly that the fetus was just absorbed by her body, and she knew that she was having these interactions. One of the ETs that she met, I don't remember, Preston, if, if you worded it, that she had a epiphany or realization before he spoke, but she came to find out that this E.T. was her son. Yeah, yeah, there's actually a couple of cases like that. She realized it, but another lady, who was also healed, by the way, um, had a gray walk into her house, and she was in the kitchen, you know, she had woken up in the middle of the night to get some juice, mm-hmm. and in walks this gray and she's fully conscious, so she's freaking out because this is not usually how it goes down. No. I th- any one of us would. If we're at 3 o'clock in the morning in the kitchen getting something out of the fridge and we look up and here is this stranger, I mean, anybody, my first right? thought is, you know, fight or flight. And she's like, why do you look so familiar to me? And he says, you know who I am. She says, no, I don't. He says, yes, you do. You know exactly who I am. And she looked at him closely, and she's like, oh, my gosh. He says, I'm your son. I am your son, your biological son. He's like, oh, my God, how, how old are you? He's like, I'm about 20. Well, you would think of me as about 25 years old. In reality, I've lived much longer. He started to explain how he was able to move through dimensions and time and 
uh, and she couldn't really understand it. It was a bit beyond her, even though she's very highly educated in sciences and physics and all of this. Uh, but yeah, he explained that uh, he was, in fact, her son. And as she's looking at him, she could see the family resemblance. It was, you know, half her and half gray. And uh, proceeded to have this long conversation with her, you know, about how you know, she'd been taken many times and how ETs, there's different types. Some are friendly, some aren't so friendly, but that they're watching her and guiding her throughout her life. And that uh, they have been. They've saved her several times. Once she got lost on the road and they showed up and guided her home. Um, they showed up when she was having a diabetic coma and uh, got her to the hospital. So they intervened a number of times. I told you the story, I think a couple of weeks ago or months ago, where she was being poisoned by her ex-husband, oh, or not her ex-husband, with antifreeze. And they warned her about that. Ugh. Literally warned her that something terrible is going on at home involving her husband. And uh, that's when she found out that, yeah, she was dealing with an honest-to-God sociopath. Uh, not for those ETs. You know, she'd be dead. Preston, we've got about five minutes left here. Um, tell me about a woman who works for the Army Department of Defense. She's approached by a UFO with a message that will save her life. Yeah, she's on her way to, I think it was Fort Benning, and this UFO comes, shows up from behind her car, and she's like, oh my gosh, this looks like a stadium, but it's a very rural area, there's nothing there. And it comes, makes a beeline for her car, comes right over it, buzzes her car 50 feet up, turns around and stops and hovers in the sky, Something is bad at home. And she's thinking to herself, well, what does that mean? Something mm -hmm. bad on Earth? You know, this makes no sense. And it repeats the message, something is bad at home, and darts off. She goes to the Army base and asks her captain, do we have any weird aircraft around? And he kind of looks at her sharply like, what are you talking about? He's like, well, I think I saw something. He's like, no, nothing that I know of. She calls up the local airports, other Air Force bases, can't get any information and realizes that this sighting was meant just for her. And uh, th this is when she goes home and she has a, she's dreaming about this message and the message uh, comes back again. Something is bad at home involving your husband. And that's when she starts paying very close attention to everything her husband is doing. Her husband has been recently very aloof, very cold, very unfeeling and just acting very strangely and bizarre. And uh, she gets very sick, rushes to the hospital, and to make a long story short, yeah, she's diagnosed with being poisoned. Ugh. Yeah, and they found out it was antifreeze in her blood. Oh, she ended geez. up having a blood transfusion, ended up having a kidney transplant because mm -hmm. of it, and very nearly died. Uh, but thank God for this UFO. It showed up and told her, you know, you've got to take action. Something is very bad happening at your house. And it didn't specifically, you know, say exactly what was happening. Um, some seems that to some extent they're not allowed to. I'm not sure. Uh, but there's a number of cases, you know, where the 
experiencers are asking the ETs, you know, why are you taking me? I said, well, we're not allowed to tell you. Or why are you doing this? We're not allowed to say. Um, so they only have so much that they can do. Mm-hmm. Uh, I think to a certain extent we do have to live our own lives and learn our own lessons. But yeah, for her, the ETs are absolutely her friends. And uh, she's delighted to be in contact with them. She's had a number of abductions as a child where she was apparently taken to another planet with a very weird fauna, a different gravity. Other children were there. Often, you know, when she'd be taken on board, children would be screaming and crying, and she would comfort them and say, listen, you're going to be fine. Um, It was never scary for her for whatever reason. For others, though, it was. So it's kind of how you interpret the experience sometimes. Mm -hmm. Uh, My last question has anybody been taken and not returned? Well, I've certainly read about it. There are a lot of cases in the literature. Well, not a lot, but it does happen. And I finally did run across my own case. And I don't have as much information as I'd like. I do have the gentleman's full name. Uh, but what a story. These teenagers had gone out to a, a, a cabin up in the high desert here in Southern California and one of them disappears for a little while and comes back saying he had come up on a landed UFO. And they invited him on board and showed him around. He said that they were human-looking mostly, sort of grayish a little bit, hybrids perhaps, but were very kind and offered to take him with them. He said, no, I don't think so. They said, well, if you want to come back a year from now, we'll be here and you can come. And he tells the story to his friends who are like, oh, yeah, right, right. He's like, no, no, it really happened. So a year goes by, and he starts giving all his stuff away. And uh, his family is very concerned, his friends, of course. His friend Tony is like, are you really going to go out there? He's like, yeah, I think I will. Um, are you going to go with them? And Paul, is his name, says, mm, I don't know about that. Well, the day arrives, and sure enough, he drives out there and doesn't come back. They, Tony and his friends drive out there with his parents to look for him and find his car with the keys in it, exactly where he said it would be, but he was never seen again. They called the police, a whole missing persons case went on, and uh, they never found him. So this guy, Paul, is his real name, was apparently <laughs> invited aboard a UFO and took the invitation and was never seen again. I don't know. It's a very interesting case, though. One of the people in our support group many, many years ago who had um, multiple encounters, uh, she, she her objection was, I'm a open, loving woman. Why can't they just come to my front door, knock on the front door, and I will greet them in a friendly way, invite them in, ask them if they want you know, coffee, tea, cookies, we can sit and have a, a uh, conversation. Why can't they do that? And that was always a question that we kicked around in the group. Yeah, there are some cases where they do show up on people's front door <laughs> and knock on the door. I mean, that happened at Whitley Strieber's mm-hmm. house. It um, happened to, uh, gosh, that guy from Colorado, uh, his name is escaping me, but He's had a number of experiences as well, where they showed up right on his front door. His sister was there. She saw them. Um, 
So that does happen, but it doesn't really reduce the fear factor in a number of cases. Mm-hmm. So ultimately, I don't know, there's a distance between us and them that they're trying to bridge. They don't understand our emotions. Uh, I think, particularly the grays, this can cause problems. But there's a lot of cases where it is very friendly, and they do invite people on board. I mean, there's one case in the book where a child was with his two friends, and he was asked for a ride aboard the UFO, and they gave it to him. And it was amazing. I mean, he talked to them. They took him out into space, showed him all this stuff, set him back down. It was a wonderful encounter from beginning to end. Let's do this, Jim. Let's just uh, leave the question with our audience that if you had a chance face-to-face to talk with one of these ETs, what is it that you'd want to ask them? And let's have people listening to the program go on our Facebook page for Exploring Unexplained Phenomena in that thread that we uh, talk about Preston's appearance today, and they can, they can list the questions they might ask. Sure, okay. like a great idea. Preston, what are you doing for the rest of the weekend? Oh, I think I'm just going to hang out and relax, do a little cleaning, um, maybe some cooking. I enjoy my weekend. I just want to relax. And actually, I do have a couple of interviews I might try to line up, so but we'll see if those fall through or not. Um, they're not perfectly set. Mm-hmm. Got lots to do for sure. Got another book I'm already working on, wow. so... Well, uh, uh, sincere, genuine conversation. Uh, I always appreciate talking with you, uh, Preston. It's just a delight. <clears throat> we have so many of our listeners that say, gosh, I like that Preston Dennett. And uh, congratulations on this brand new book, Onboard UFO Encounters. Hey, thanks. I appreciate it. Yeah, I'm super excited about it. Okay, have a great rest of the weekend, Preston, and thanks for you being you. <laughs> Thank you. And folks, thank you very much for listening. We've got uh, a show coming up called Beta Radio and more interesting music and some talk uh, all throughout Saturday afternoon. So stay with us. Next week's guest is Heather Ash Amara or Amara, the Warrior Heart. And Jim, thanks for being here. Great fun. And may your car always start. May my car always start. Well, starting isn't the problem. Getting into it is sometimes. The frozen door locks. The frozen door locks, yes. You folks take care of yourselves and uh, reach out if there's an elderly neighbor and go out and scoop their walk for them. How about that, huh? Okay. Thanks so much for listening. I'm Scott Colborn. Thanks to Preston Dennett for being here. And earlier, Lloyd Arbach. Stay tuned for Beta Radio. I'll see you and talk to you next week. And until then, walk in beauty.